Hello, everyone. We have a great show for you this week. Rosemary is still on leave, but we're going to talk about Oregon's new battery, solar, and wind utility scale site, the first one in America. And the UK is talking about capping renewable power revenues to keep energy prices down. We're going to jump over to uh, the Nordic countries and talk about some wooden wind turbine towers. We've talked about these in the past, but now we want to share with you that they're moving forward. They've got a, a letter of intent from RES, so that's that's cool for them. Uh, also going into 10 megawatt plus onshore wind turbines. Do you think it can happen? Do we think it can happen? Uh, the CEO of Nordex believes that that is the future. Uh, and lastly on the show, we're going to talk about Siemens Gamesa partnering with Airborne uh, on some offshore wind turbine blades and uh, looking at automation um, so they can hopefully get the cost of the blades down and the quality up. I'm Alan Hall. I'm president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. All right, Joel, there's a new renewable energy plant up in Oregon, about 200 miles directly east of Portland, if you know your geography on the northwest coast of America. It's the Wheat Ridge Renewable Energy Facility. It's the first utility-scale development in North America that combines wind, solar, and battery storage. And it's hard to believe that that's the first one, but it's the first one. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the, the plant is a combination uh, effort between NextAir Energy Resources, NextAir is a big wind uh, provider across the country, and Portland, Portland General Electric, which has had some problems with wind turbines in the recent past. So I'm glad they're hooked up with NextAir on this project. Uh, they have 300 megawatts of wind uh, with uh, generated by 120 GE turbines. They have 50 megawatts of, of solar panels and 30 megawatts of battery storage, and they estimate they can provide power to 100,000 homes. Is this the future for America? Man, I think so. If I step into some developer shoes, I'm thinking less permit costs, less headache. Yeah. You know, de developing on one side, if you get permission from this hunk of land and we can put all these things here, it also, in my mind, and, and I haven't seen their, the business model, of course, but in my mind, O&M costs become cheaper, transmission lines become cheaper, you know, connecting to the grid all is in one spot. So you're not having to build, you know, roads and pads and this and that in three different locations. It's boom, it's all in one. Um, and if you can cross train some of your employees to, to be able to monitor and uh, ensure that these batteries and the, the solar panels and whatever, and, you know, your inspections become easier instead of having three sets of you know, three different teams monitoring this thing. Now you've got one team monitoring it as a whole. Uh, I think there's, and that's just from the business model side in my mind, right? Um, I right. think there's a lot of advantages to it. Um, I think there's a lot of areas as well in the United States specifically, if you look at where this is geographically. In the United mm. States, there's a lot of areas that are really probably well suited for this type of development, right? Like I think West oh, sure. Texas, West Texas, there's a lot of places where like, man, the wind is blowing well. The solar resource is fantastic. Um, battery storage, maybe not as much um, just because they're not as close to major um, population areas. But I don't think that really matters as 
as much as I think it does. Um, so I, I would like to see more and more of this. Um, so I think that this could be a good use case and something that I hope to hear a lot about, you know, in the industry as we move forward. Yeah, because even though we have a lot of, I would call distributed wind across the Midwest, we, we have not connected it with solar too much or, or with battery even. I think there's only a couple of places that I know of that have battery storage, Texas being one of those locations. It, but there's a, a it'd be a lot of work to do still. I, I was running the numbers because I, I first saw this news posted on of all things Twitter a place that I don't really care for all that much. You were watching Elon, and, and, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure he'd be a proponent of this actually. But then the comment was, "Oh, we ought to do this all the way all over America." And my thought was, "Well, maybe." You know, maybe there's there's certainly applications for it, but how many times would we have to repeat this? We'd have to do this a lot. It'd be thousands of times we'd have to replicate this sort of configuration. I forget how many homes are in America. I want to say 140 million, but that sounds like a lot. Maybe it's 14 million. There's a, it's something around those numbers. So we'd have to do this in a lot of different places. And America is just not set up for that. Maybe Maybe Oregon is, but New York City and some of those areas are just too population dense to, to even think about it. You know, I'm thinking about the numbers here as well. So 300 megawatt, that's 120 GEs at what? They're the 2.6s or something. Two something, yeah. Yeah, so the 2X platforms. That's Those are right. good platforms. You said to see a lot of those uh, around the country. So 300 megawatts of wind, is a that's a sizable wind project. I think the biggest one in the it U.S. is, is just, just under a gigawatt, right? The biggest one's like 998 yeah. or yeah. whatever. So that's Down a decent Oklahoma. size yeah, that's a decent size wind uh, installation. Uh, Fifty megawatts of, uh, of photovoltaic, so of, of you know t- utility scale solar, decent size, but not that big, right? I've heard right. of a lot, yeah. a lot bigger. Um, Thirty megawatt battery. Now I don't know what they're using for battery. If this thirty megawatt kind of sounds like it might just be a lithium type site, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's not massive, but still. Good. Every little bit we can add to the grid is good, especially at good interconnections yeah. and whatnot. So maybe this is just a test, right? I'm thinking that that one big, uh, and I can't remember the name of it, but the one they're looking at putting in southern Wyoming, where it's supposed to be like three gigawatts of wind over the next 15 oh, years. Oh, yeah. It's going to Vegas it, with the cable. Yeah, the transmission yeah, line goes I think, to Vegas, yes. Yeah, I'm thinking that site, now that whole site is so, it, the site is massive. Right, but may, but maybe there's a couple of locations on that site where you can filter in some solar and stuff like that, you know. And I, I don't know with the snow in Wyoming if it's feasible or not, but um, I think that it's a really good idea um, to lower the levelized cost of energy. Um, mm-hmm. Also, you know, my mind always shifts into the financial markets and these kind of things. So, uh, insurance-wise, could be could be better. Uh, or could be right. worse because if everything is stuck to you know if the battery storage is right next to the solar panels, it, something happens. <laughs> next to so the wind turbine, more, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There might be more <laughs> risk there. I don't know if a, the turbine throws a blade and it lands in the middle of the solar panels. That could be bad. Um, but you know, you're also you're also centralizing risk for. So I'm thinking now, hailstorm. Hailstorm comes through. Now mm. you've now you got solar fa- panel problems. You got wind turbine blades, nacelles, uh, spinners, all these problems. But, I mean, you're going to have that no matter what. So there's going to be risk associated. Yeah. Uh, I guess my – Go ahead. I like it. I like the idea. Um, I think it's uh, cost efficient uh, of spend from from next era. And 
Portland General Electric. Some people refer to it as PGE, not to be confused with Pacific Gas and Electric out right. of California, um, <laughs> because not a whole lot of people are happy with those guys these days. Nope. But, but um, yeah, I like the concept, and um, I, I want to hear more on. It. I want to see how the development process goes, and if I, you know, if possible, I'd love to see more of the commercial model behind it. Well, you know what Rosemary would say is, why did it take America so long? We've been doing it in Australia for 10 years or 20 yeah. years or something, right? It's something yeah. that the yeah. United States has not been a leader in this sort of combo. And I, I know Australia has for a while. And it's, it's, mm -hmm. So I, I thought this had already happened when I saw this utility scale combo featured. I thought, oh, come on. Is that really the first one? But I, I guess it is. So we have, a, we have a long way to go. It's still a long yeah. way to go. So Joel, the problem with the uh, natural gas prices coming out of Eastern Europe and other places is causing a problem in the United Kingdom. And so the electricity prices are expected to quote unquote skyrocket over the next couple of months. They've already gone up considerably in the last, last several months since the spring. But the UK is proposing a cap on revenues of renewable power producers an attempt to keep prices stable for consumers. So the Department of Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy. Now, that's one heck of, <laughs> of a <laughs> Goes of with a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Discussed uh, this proposal with some of the largest renewable energy companies all behind closed doors. And I hate that when I read. Cool. They were negotiating behind closed doors because it, it, it it just shouldn't be behind closed doors. It's not, okay. yeah, not fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the energy producers are just getting throttled, I'm sure. Uh, so the proposed cap will limit revenues and take uh, the additional revenue and redistribute them back, in theory, to the consumers. And so the, the threat of these record energy prices this winter is of massive concern to the UK government and to the citizens. But it seems like the politicians are really focused on it because the government is a little unstable at the minute. Uh, so the UK government is essentially pushing for long-term fixed-price contracts, PPAs. <laughs> but I guess they don't have them at the moment, so they're going to try to force it that way. And and they're trying, in, in a weird way, they're, they're trying to decouple renewable energy prices from natural gas prices. And I don't know if that has been done anywhere on the planet yet. I think this may be the first attempt to decouple them, but it seems like something very hard to decouple just because of the way the marketplace works. So... Uh, British lawmakers have approved a you know a 25% windfall tax on oil and gas producers uh, earlier uh, this year. So th there's a, sort of a foundation for this process to happen. But now that uh, uh, the European Union is talking about doing something very similar, it seems like the United Kingdom is going to be uh, in a similar vein. So the, the, in the European Union, the European Commission has proposed setting a price limit of 180 euros per megawatt hour. So that's about $180 per megawatt hour, roughly, uh, which is still a pretty good price. Yeah, it's still, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's about, you know, two, about three times what it is in the States at the moment. So does this, Joel, I mean, are we thinking to see more of this? And I'll, I'll put on a, another little wrinkle to this. I, the French government has essentially nationalized the French yeah. power producers and Germany is in the process of doing something very similar. The UK hasn't made that move yet, but this essentially would do that. When you're capping profits, you're essentially mm -hmm. taking over the marketplace. Is this a, a short-term thing that's going to happen, or do you see this because of the 
issues uh, in Eastern Europe? Do you think this is going to be more of a long-term play? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is PPA, right? So when we're in right. the U.S. and we're looking at PPAs, they are a lot of times from development assigned to PPA will get you your financing. Uh, and that piece so that PPA will be sometimes 20 years, right? So if you're, you're talking 20 years, so if they say, this is what we want you to cap it at, okay, then everybody has to adjust their operating model to operate their assets effectively at 180 euros per megawatt or right. megawatt hour. So if everybody has to get to that point and then they want to look towards a long-term fixed price PPA, you're, yeah, you're essentially taking the capital, uh, like the capitalism portion and the, the profit moving and the revenue out of the industry. I think that it makes it not like not a non-starter for some people or they don't want to go to it. Right. So if you're, Right. If you're a, a, a like a Scottish power who has all kinds of different assets, like you're going to start swinging your, you start swinging your capital somewhere else, you know. And I mean, I think you have they, to, right? You, you almost have yeah. to. With the Nord Stream, like the Nord Stream pipeline thing that got blown up, that we're still trying to investigate who did it last uh, last week or two weeks ago. Uh, you know, energy security and supply security is a big portion of. What yeah. this department business energy strategy and industrial yada yada uh, group is probably trying to take part in. All of Europe is looking at it that way. The rest of the world should take notice on thinking about energy security. I 100% agree with that. But I don't know if capping the profitability of renewables is the way to do that. Uh, right. And I, yeah. we had a similar situation happen in Texas, right? In, in fact, Texas, I think, put a cap on the maximum price that could happen in a in a, like an ICE situation a year mm. ago, where mm. I think they said at $2,000 a megawatt hour, because it wasn't like $9,000 or some crazy yeah. number. There was, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I was, was living crazy. there during that. And there was people that got, there was people that were delivered like $10,000 that month electricity bills. Like wow. that's, that's, that's crazy. There's an, there's a limit that you should hit an extreme on, right? Like the general right. public shouldn't have to be at that, you know? I, so I know so, like, I don't, well, so how, I'm, I'm here. How does I'm, that work though? I mean, how does it work? I, let me ask, how does, how would this functionally work? If, if you're going to set a, a limit or like a European case, European commission is talking about setting a limit or in the UK case, there's mm -hmm. basically limiting mm -hmm. revenues to some number what do you do with the excess? Like, how do you, how does the what does the government do with that? Uh, so I think they would use it as they'd use it as a subsidy. I think they would have to subsidize. But if you're if you're capping at a certain height, then the 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 extreme cost doesn't get passed on to the consumer. They get capped at that one eighty. So they know that their power bill right. can only get to be so much. So if there's right. extra money to be had and it goes into a fund, then I would say that that fund would get redistributed across the power generating companies. But isn't to, that just where the the process goes sideways, right? I think that's in the United States. Yeah. The process would go sideways there because they wouldn't redistribute. So in the United it. in the United States, I'll give you an ex <laughs> yeah, I'll give you an example here, and this isn't exactly the same, but this is on the other side. So we're talking here in this example, power company, government, and they're negotiating between the two of them, right? Uh, and the consumers just have to take as they get. Right. I'm in I'm in northern Wisconsin, back into my my hometown here in Hayward, uh, and it's beautiful. It's fall colors and everything. We were talking about this off off. 
uh, line. But today it got down to, this morning was 27 degrees. So it's already, I mean, it's October and it's 27 degrees already. So it's getting cold. One of the things that they do up here, now this isn't a negotiation between the government and the power companies, but it's the, the power energy companies and the consumer. So you can be a part of a co-op. You can be a part of just a, right. you know, a regular. So like a thing they do is, hey, pre-buy, pre-buy your propane for the winter. Pre-pay. So, so you prepay. So you, at, you as the consumer can hunt for when the levels are good. And then you say, boom, I want 3,000 gallons of propane at that price yeah. for the next year. And they go, okay, you're, you're locked in at that price. Now, that's a, uh, a gamble that the power companies or gas companies have to take to get cash flow all year round. But, you know, they get, sometimes they get burned. Sometimes the consumer gets burned. Sure. Sure. Sure they do. But that's a hedge, right? I think the the marketplace, energy marketplace is full of hedges. And that's the market controlling it. Exactly. Right. And I, my guess is that the, the renewable energy companies are going back to the UK government saying, well, there's a ton of hedges on the marketplace right now. Buy one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're selling hedges at the moment. Just buy some. Uh, so you know what that that power price is going to be. Because you think typically in any uh, fuel market, energy market, there are there are there is a marketplace to figure out. You know, you can you can do at least twelve months ahead. Sometimes several mm-hmm. years ahead. Mm-hmm. And it happens in aviation all the time. I would say that the energy marketplace over in the UK already has some sort of system somewhat like that. So the energy companies have an understanding of what their income levels are, and you're just going to really rock the boat on them because now they don't know what the revenues are, right? So, so the investments a, yeah. just go away. They just have to stop. Yeah, exactly. It's too risky. So this too is risky. a this is a you know an article and the thing we're talking about in the UK. But I just spent a week with my compadres in Denmark. This is a very real conversation amongst them as well. They're, they're, people are scared for this winter in Europe because well, the, the energy prices are just – they just – and there's no sure. there's no cap to it. When's it going to stop? When's the bleeding going to stop? So at some level, as much as I hate to say this out loud, please nobody record this. I guess we're recording now. But the government has to step in and do something to protect uh, the consumers from things that are happening outside of their borders. I, I I agree with you. I think this is a short-term situation mm-hmm. that the U.S. really stepped into. I, I mm. feel somehow culpable in this mess just because I'm a U.S. citizen. But holy moly, the U.S. sort of created the situation that exists right now in Eastern Europe. And we are not – in, in I get the, the discussions that I've seen in the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, some other places are saying, we're not going to help Europe this winter. We're going to keep all that energy in America. And it, it is astonishing to me that the United States, which was in part responsible for what's happening in Eastern Europe, is not going to then try to help yeah. <laughs> the that's, that's continent. Where- I don't understand it. It makes no sense to me. We should be sending, in my opinion, us and Canada yeah. should be sending natural gas LNG tankers straight across the Atlantic. That's what we I should. I think on right the now. open market we are right. I I, I think yeah. on the open market we are. If you look at, I did do some research and looking to where the LNG shipments are going. The U.S. is on the open marketplace sending LNG over to Europe. 
not at maybe levels that are have any significant impact on the on the pricing, which is odd because it doesn't sound like the supplies are short. In Germany, it sounds like has plenty of supplies to get through, quote unquote, April, whatever that means. I don't know if that just means the housing stock, the the, the, the homes are going to be heated, or does that mean all of industry in Germany is up and running through April? I don't know yet. There's a bunch of discussion about that. But it seems like the United States has the ease the most likely case of being able to support Europe at least for a couple of months, because it also sounds like the Middle East is going to raise oil prices or cut production to raise oil prices, yeah, which that. is not helping that. And I feel also like the United States contributed to that situation with OPEC or OPEC plus what they call it, OPEC plus Russia, uh, that, that somehow we're in the middle of this and we can't stop causing pain. The Saudis have got a new, a whole new Gulf League to pay for for private jets and whatnot, so they got to raise oil prices a little bit. Right. I know. I was. In, right. So I was when I was when I was up in Canada, um, up in Newfoundland, not you know two months ago. There was this big. Uh, the German Chancellor came over and met with Trudeau, and they had this big signing yeah. right. about hydrogen stuff. And I'm yes. sitting there thinking to myself, like, man, they're exporting so much uh, hydro, so many you know barrels of hydrocarbon every day to the out the west side of the country why don't instead of them talking about hydrogen right now bring it this way because what you know your conversation you're saying it sounds like they have enough to get through so are the sky high prices just worry in the market is it is it the financial I, markets just going we don't know so because risk. it sounds like right now it's there but the risk has to be hedged and that by that it's raised prices when you can because eventually if it gets too bad the government will step in and, like they're doing here, or proposing to do here, cap it at 180 euros. Now, I want to shift shift gears one second. 180 euros, if that's the cap, that is an easy price to run in operation. Oh, yeah. a, a renewable Absolutely. Like you're you're, pro yeah. you're profitable big time at 180 megawatts an hour. Yes, you so are. So this yes. not going to like it, it's going to take away maybe a couple of fancy dinners and private jet flights, but. 180 euros an hour, a megawatt hour is, is nothing to sneeze at. So if your if if your operating budget is at that or above that, you've already got a problem. Um, so I don't know if there is any kind of I don't know what the government subsidies or help is in the UK for getting renewable generation installed. I don't know what that is. I'm not an expert on that, but um, I want to hope this doesn't curb any of it. Because they've got big goals right. over there, just like we do. Yeah, yeah. The longer term play is should still be in focus. We seem to be mm -hmm. all of a sudden focused on the next couple of months, and maybe rightly we should be until the situation calms down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we can't also lose the the longer term picture. And it feels like if we start putting these systems in place, that government starts taking revenue away. They don't like to undo mm -hmm. those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. revenueing sources to the to the government and so they'll tend to stay and that's going to hurt long term i think it's just yeah. more to watch and and as as, as you said as, as it starts to get cold in the united states it's starting to get cold in europe there's, there's a lot more of this to come get the latest on wind industry news business and technology sent straight to you every week sign up for the uptime tech newsletter at weatherguardwind.com slash news so Swedish wood wind turbine maker Modvion announced a deal with global wind developer RES. Now, Joel, you're like, what? <laughs> what? What is this all about? <laughs> when I saw this mm -hmm. news article that 
okay, this this is interesting. So they have a letter of intent between RES and Mavion, and we'll have RES promoting wood towers to projects in Nordic countries. When they say Nordic, I assume that means Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, pretty much, right? That's where the, the I would big say boom no, is. I'd say Norway, Sweden, Finland. That would be the three. Oh, Finland. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that, that would make sense. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, so the agreement will is looking to yield about 20 towers per year. For 10 years, beginning in 2026. So it goes from 2026 to 2036. And the contract's worth about $350 million U.S. dollars. Now, now this, this is the part that doesn't make any sense. So if you start doing the math on that, that's about one, about a little over $1.5 million dollars per turbine tower. That doesn't make any sense. So somewhere the, the, the math is off. And maybe $175,000 per tower would make a little more sense, except that they're talking about making really tall towers. Like 250 okay. plus meter towers, which then may cost a pretty penny. Yeah. Uh, but but Modvian has been backed by Vestas. They have a couple of investors into that company. It's not a, it's not a very large company at the moment, but it will have to be if it's starting to produce towers at quantity. But it is are wood towers the way to get to these 200, 300 meter uh, hub heights uh, <laughs> for? For better wind, is is that where all this is going? Does it make sense? If, if there's a structural thing there that uh, that you know having having that fibrous moving kind of thing that can absorb some wind, absorb some impact, or something of the sort, uh, then there's something I don't know about here. But you know, classical knowledge has got you at a you know hundred thousand for a tower for the steel of a tower you know not that's of course right. not the ladders and cables and all that good jazz but yeah, yeah. um per megawatt so this pricing puts it like man 15 20 times the cost so uh maybe this maybe it was in in like danish krona so that that would put those three that that's, that's what I million back down yeah, i don't know right so so Divided by seven uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I like you know we've talked about this in the past, and I like the concept of it. But if it's that that's that's cost prohibitive, that's going the other way that the wind industry needs to go raising the level of cost of energy, and that is unless there's some kind of structural thing here that makes these better or more well, resilient to damage or something. Is it the shipment part of the tower uh, delivery that is causing a problem? Because obviously you can make these these wood towers yeah. and segments. You can do that with steel too. Um, yeah, you do it with steel too. I mean. Even yeah. if you're charging 10,000 10, bucks a truckload, there's f- five sections for each tower. I mean, it's 50 grand right. to move them. That's that's peanuts. From the port of Houston to West Texas or Oklahoma or whatever, 50 grand is that. Right. Unless, that is unless you get stuck on a on a train tracks and the train takes it out. Then you got big problems. But we've seen that happens. happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just hope uh, for the sake of the industry um, and maybe someone from Madvian – would love to chat with us, but I hope for the sake of the industry that this isn't a big greenwashing thing. Cause I don't, I don't, I don't see the financial feasibility of it from, at least from the, the, the five bullet points we're looking at here in a quick article, right? Maybe there's more to yeah. it than we don't know. Or is it just to kickstart the, the company and start to build a little bit of scale that the yeah. prices will come down when they start to scale up a little bit. Quantity changes yeah, that- everything. That could absolutely be, and but I'm, when I look at it, say the agreement, you know, we're looking at twenty towers per year for ten years. That's two hundred towers, and could be worth three hundred and fifty million. If that three hundred and fifty million number says 
20 minimum per year for 10 years up to 100 or something like that and that's mm -hmm. where the 350 million is and we're just kind of not seeing it right here in the in the press release then there's something there because i believe it's just like everything else we talk about what is or with especially with rosemary okay so what is the amount of time that this is this technology is going to be more affordable be you know health right. levelized cost of energy out oh, right now i'm so you know if it's a startup and it's the first 10 towers are going to be one and a half million uh, but the next ones are going to be one and then year three they're 500 and year four they're 100 uh, then they've got something cooking Maybe. because it's it's sustainable then and it's and you're not you know the thing i keep going like the talking the last section energy security now the nordic countries won't have to rely on south korea and india and well, brazil for steel that's what i was wondering is it a steel play obviously the shipping is part of that but is it a steel play they can reduce the amount of steel usage and that there's a, a cost savings and a carbon dioxide uh, elimination by using wood instead of steel because mm -hmm. making steel use creates a lot of co2 obviously so is is it the combo that they're they're getting uh, I, I won't use the word greenwashing but is is it a credit system because they're, they're cutting For, an amount of carbon from being produced because they're not making the steel towers that that, yes. that that's a benefit to them is res's esg rating going to skyrocket after this <laughs> maybe maybe it's possible so i think there's just yeah. more to watch here i, I it, it is interesting technology we haven't seen it really implemented yet and 2026 is a long way away from today what happens in the meantime? How does Modvion get from 2022 to 2026? Those those couple of years can get pretty lean. You think they'd be trying to hook up some some contracts right now? All right. So next we're going to talk Nordex guys. So Europe's chief executive executive says onshore turbines will reach 10 megawatts and higher. So the first thought that comes to my mind, Alan, is that right now a lot of the offshore turbines aren't even that big. Right. What kind of t right. what kind of hub heights we're going to have to need to have these to be safe on shore? Oh, gosh, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know. I haven't yeah. thought about it, but yeah, they're going to be have to be pretty high. <laughs> I mean, a, a ten megawatt turbine. I'm thinking they got to have at least ninety meter blades on them. And if you want to have oh, yeah. some re some relief, you're talking a hundred and fifty meter tower. Oh gosh, yeah, probably two hundred meter towers. And I think that's at a, a lot. minimum. Yeah, that's massive. That's big time. So you're starting to you're starting to fight with some more air airspace laws. Yeah, there's yeah. there's 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 quite a some hurdles there. I think your neighbor would notice the wind turbine yeah. in your backyard at those heights. Yeah, a little too. bit. Yeah. So what? so earlier this year they revealed this the new six megawatt turbine, the N one sixty five or one seventy five, uh, and that turbine can be upgraded to seven megawatts. Uh, which th there's some space they're competing in there. I think Enercon actually just re released one hundred and seventy five. Uh, yes, at the show well. in Hamburg they did yeah. that. Yeah. Yep. Um, so uh, this is this is to compete with the Siemens Gamesa SG 7.0, and that's the 170. So they're they're getting that class right. And I right. believe, and I don't want to I don't want to say this wrong, but I believe a lot of those are for low wind areas, they so are. they can actually pick, they, they can actually pick up um, in those lower wind areas that are kind of steady. And once you get up that high, of course, the wind resource is much better. Uh, but the the whole thing is to push on a lower lower levelized cost of energy, um, you know, which is of course highly dependent on rotor size and 
tower heights. So if you have an area that you want to get wind energy from, um, the higher you get in the sky, the less pads you have to build, the less ground right. you're taking up, the less permits you have. Um, that's why I mean, it's the same thing of the offshore play, right? The offshore play, why they go so big? Because uh, the levelized cost of energy goes down because you're only driving one pile and now you're getting what's the newest, you know, 15 megawatts out of, out of the big yeah. guys. And, and I think with the advancement in uh, transmission lines and the cabling, the, the the voltages that those cables can withstand is getting so high. And we, I, I've been noticing that in Hamburg too, that everybody's just pushing for bigger and bigger, which means fewer and fewer parts, essentially. That's what it means. Just bigger parts, yeah. less of them. That Yeah, I think they're pushing to levelized cost of energy. It needs is a big driver and, and they, they, they need to shove that down. I just don't see it playing so well in certain parts of the United States, you're talking about five times what we have right now in America. Most, most of the terms yeah. in America are two megawatts for the most part. So yeah. if you're yeah. five Xing that, wow, those turbines are going to get really big. We're talking about logistics issues. I think we talked about it a couple months ago and there was a, yeah. a company or actually it was NREL who was pioneering a way to transport some of these components and blades on trains where the, the actual blade took up like four or five train cars. <laughs> Right. So, so I, I guess you might be limited to wherever there's rail, you can build these things, um, because I don't see a hundred and I'm just going stupid math, uh, folks. Ninety meter blade, I'm going two hundred and seventy feet, three hundred feet, three hundred foot blade, plus the truck, which looks to be really small in front of a three hundred foot blade. That's not going down a highway, you know. No. Like so, I mean, you might be able to transport them on the beach to a port facility and build one there, but inland U.S. Uh, I don't, I just don't see it happening. Uh, you're looking at multi-piece blades. I think, I think uh, GEs yeah. and LMs multi multi-piece blade, which they, they seem to use and not use, or use and not use. You're, I think you're yeah. into must use at, at those lengths. Yeah, they, I, I would assume. <laughs> They use and then they don't use when they have issues with it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, multi-piece multi bays have been around for a long time, but I don't think anybody's got them 100% correct. They're, you know, And it could be this too, Alan. What do you think about let's, – let's make a two-gigawatt facility, something we got a massive amount of spaces for. Yeah. Build a temporary factory on site and build the blades right there. Oh, you'll have to. I, I don't I really think so. know any way you can get avoid it. Really, you have to build a temporary yeah. factory. And we've looked at those, that company, gosh, I want to say they're in Colorado. It's either Colorado or Texas that's making the spiral towers, right? Yeah, yeah. Colorado. And, yeah, it's Colorado. Okay, so that technology, it looks really interesting to me. And I'm surprised they're not getting a bunch of funding into that company because mm -hmm. if we do get to even five megawatts on, on, on shore, seven, ten you have to build the towers, I think, on site and probably the blades. And who knows about the generator? Some of the nacelle components, like some of that may be built or assembled on site for sure. Does that change the way you just do everything? Because right now we're just essentially shipping the big components, however far they yeah. got to go, and assembling them at the site. Now the site becomes a factory. Is that yeah. where we end up so, at? I, I think so, we end up so, at, yeah. So there's a business case model there too, right? Where it's, okay, what's the ROI on this? Do we build it? We shut it down. Do we build something temporary. Can we really right. get, can we really have proper QA, QC in a, a temporary factory? A um, 
Yeah, exactly. But I mean, if you're building us something, I mean, it would almost have to be like we talked with Rosemary about like this, the uh, snowy power, snowy, what was the one in Australia? Oh, yes. The hydro facility. Snowy, snowy hydro. So what that project was so dang big that the government had to put up the capital Step for in. it. Yeah. If we have the, if the government decides they want to build a five gigawatt power facility, well, that's got these massive turbines and stuff in it. Maybe there's enough capital behind it to do that. And then if that if that factory could do double duty of putting out fifty and sixty meter blades, and they can actually be used around the country as well, yeah. Well, then then there might be a play for it. Or maybe the they shut down factories in Iowa. They start building seven and ten megawatt turbines right around that thing, <laughs> and then. <laughs> right. And then move on. Um, so, so we're discussing some of the headwinds uh, to this technology, but um, it's already in place kind of worldwide as well. So Sweden only approved roughly a quarter uh, of the onshore wind projects last year um, because yeah. of the technology, the too tall of turbines, too close to home, visible. Uh, yeah. visible, all this stuff. So potential wind sites across the U.S. are they're already pushing back on wind turbines in general, but taller wind turbines as well. So. While technologically this may be something that can happen or could be in the future, I mean, what do you think about the the public's response to it, Alan? Is, is it possible? I don't think it's possible until you until you start writing checks. It's possible yeah. if the, the the neighborhoods around these areas receive a part of the proceeds. That seems to make everybody want to work together for the quote unquote greater good. But they're all getting paid a little bit, and I think that's why you see so much acceptance of wind in certain areas in the United States is because they've been economically depressed. They've had bad crops for a number of years. Whatever the case is, having $1,000 hit your mailbox or $10,000 hit your mailbox once a month is not, it's not a bad way to go. And yeah. you would think that, particularly in the United States, because the, the U.S. government does – control of masses amount of territory. I, I, the number oh. sticks in my head for like Utah. I think the government, federal government is, has claimed like a third of Utah. That yeah, is I just mean, it's federal property. Hundreds of millions of, of acres all right. over the place. Right. And, and I'll give you the, 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 it's up in Alaska. So the Anwar discussion about yeah. drilling in Anwar all the time. All right. Maybe we don't drill for petroleum there. Fine, but maybe we put 50, 10 megawatt turbines up there and create this massive wind facility. Maybe the wind that's always what, blows. what you do. Right. Wind yeah. You, you create these wind sites. Right. You create these wind sites on federal lands such that pretty much no one lives in those federal lands. At least it's severely reduced. There's no big cities on federal land for yeah. the most part in the states. That it may be a little bit easier to do and, and to permit. Maybe that's where these things end up because I, I don't see. You know, three megawatts. I mean, I'm thinking out in the future, four megawatt, five megawatts seems like probably the limit you're going to see anywhere near a populated area. After that, I think you're right that you're going to run into problems. Yeah, I mean, you're the. I just googled it real quick. The Bureau of Land Management, which is the big federal agency. There's other ones that manage land as well, but in the U.S., 245 million acres. Uh, oh, that's wow. a that's a that's a 10 percent of American land, and most of it's in the West. There isn't much yeah. BLM land until you hit Colorado and Wyoming, New Mexico. Right. Like it's all it's all over there. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's doable. It's it's a doable uh, plan if you want to get to condensed areas of high energy production. That's mm -hmm. how you would do it. 
Yeah, and then it's a then it's a matter of transmission, like we've talked about uh, many times, uh, getting this power to market. So if some of those big lines get stabbed in across from Wyoming to to Las Vegas, well, then there's a whole corridor there that can be connected to it all across this BLM land. Um, I've I've worked on BLM land quite a bit. Uh, there's some interesting stakeholders when you get on it. Of course, a lot of BLM land runs through. Um, uh, First Nations reservation territory, and you want to make yeah. sure that everything is done well by those stakeholders. But it might bring yeah. some economic boom there as well. Um, sure. I do know that the the archaeological and environmental studies through there would take forever. I mean, you'd be you're yes. worse than offshore because you can actually walk yeah. there and see it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've had jobs shut down for a kind of cactus. Uh. Yeah. Well, here's a good question. If, if, because you can do these, if we, if we say we go to 10, 15, maybe 20 megawatts on shore, do the, do, and because, and it'll, because it will have to be more remotely located, but those feeder lines also become like the route 66 of, you know, mm -hmm. 2030, right? You, you, yeah, wherever yeah. there's energy is where, towns and industry is going to mm -hmm. develop because you can't mm -hmm. get it or th that's the cheapest place right we're already seeing it in amazon with the amazon web serve services and some of those youtube and others where they're locating their businesses where the energy prices are the lowest cost mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right so Big you're time. seeing a shift you're seeing a shift out of california where energy prices are super high and the east coast mm -hmm. moving to the middle of the united states like iowa because the the prices are less and you, it's weirdly enough, uh, creating these bigger centers for wind and, and solar, which will happen too, may change the demographics of the United States just because that's where power is. You know, I, I read something a while back that said of the in, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the commodity that was the most important was steel. Sure. That, that built Pittsburgh. what we see today. Yes. So people yeah, don't really, Detroit. a lot of people don't really realize that steel was the commodity. Then steel gave yep. way to hydrocarbons and hydrocarbons yeah, as the, as, as the commodity carried us all the way until now, basically. Uh, and then there was the, the article went on to say the the commodity of the future is going to be data. And so you're starting to see this massive amount of data collections. You just talk Amazon web servers and things like that. Right. Mm. And then at the end of the article, before they went to their conclusion and kind of walked through this thing, they said, but it might not be data. It might just basically be energy. It's got to be and we're energy. Starting, we're starting to see that, I mean, at a global scale, everywhere we're talking yes. about. One one event in Eastern Europe has caused this massive crisis worldwide in energy prices, energy production, energy usage. And as we grow as a society, we're only going to absorb more. I mean, you go, I walked into... Um, a friend's house the other day and i was like this kid had an ipad this kid was on an iphone laptop here tv on there like and while electronics are more efficient than they were the yes. just the amount of consumption of electricity electric car charging in the garage like there it's it's going to change the way we see the future um right in for the generations to come i think so the silicon valley situation may not happen in silicon valley and may because that's where aerospace was at the time and so silicon valley is an outgrowth of aerospace companies mm -hmm. it, it could be where the transmission lines are which is a fascinating yes. way to think about it yeah and you're going to start to see possibly um you know little societies little com 
communities and stuff pop up where they weren't before or where they were before and then they grow back up you know we talked last week about in nebraska with the county where they had the the u.s military had some installations and they and they they wouldn't put when that county had 645 people in it in new york city that's a block one building (laughs) yeah it's one building of people so so now if you start to get these these the the you know new arteries the lifeblood of what rural america is for power generation crisscrossed by transmission lines that might spur on i mean of course there's jobs there but that might spur on economic activity in all these locations it it already has in a sense i think we're just not paying attention to it Uh, panasonic's Mm going to put about four billion dollars into eastern kansas in rural Kansas to build a battery factory. And they're talking yeah. about doing that same thing in Oklahoma, not 200 miles south of there in sort of south of Tulsa. Uh, mm-hmm. There's area in there where they're talking about doing the same thing. They're going to make a second plant, but it has to do with, you think in part of lower cost of energy for this lithium battery factory that which is going to feed, I think Tesla down in Texas. So you're already seeing this shift towards, Lower cost energy sites where in- industries moving out of the bigger cities and more expensive cities are moving out of Chicago, they're moving out of New York, they're moving out of, um, you know, Detroit, and they're moving yeah. to places where it's, it's just less expensive. And where the energy corridor is moving to is Texas to Iowa right now. And, and it's, it's in its infancy. We're not talking about it like we should, but it is definitely happening. And yeah, the energy wanna- companies know it. You want to talk about onshoring manufacturing as we do? We would like oh, to that's see how you do it again. Yeah, again as a business case, you bring it to where the 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 hired help is cheaper. Don't go yeah. stick them in Detroit where the where the unions will gouge you. Go go to Oklahoma where people are happy to have a job that that pays a good wage. Yeah, no it's changing the demographics. I love Oklahoma. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Family Great to see jobs. So, yeah, they're they're going to love those jobs. They're going to get in the next couple of years. And it's and it's all, in part, by just being part of this sort of renewable energy future. It's really changing the demographics. Fascinating. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually, it's very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS, so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Joel, as we've just discussed, blades are getting bigger. And usually what that means to manufacture them, the cost goes up exponentially because you need more people to build these blades and everything just gets costlier as you go along. And we can't continue to do that, right? There's downward pressure on pricing. For all the OEMs, and Siemens Gamesa is no exception. So Siemens Gamesa is partnering with a company out of the Netherlands called Airborne for automated systems to manufacture offshore wind blades. And although Siemens Gamesa is not getting into the specifics, it seems like Airborne is going to be involved in probably kitting of the composite plies for the blade and maybe laying the plies down into the mold, because that seems like a very intensive mm-hmm. process. Uh, so they're just trying to reduce, I think, variations in the blades. Like they've had some issues on the five megawatt blades 
My guess it has to do with just the complexity of putting those blades together and people laying those plies down with rollers and brooms or whatever else yeah. they do to put plies down. Uh, and maybe they're, maybe they're, they're uh, you know, Siemens is learning a lesson like, hey, because we're going to make so many of these blades, we need to take the variability out of it and we need to automate some of this. And they're the first company that I know that's actually mentioned automating the blade manufacturing. I, do you see this, you know, expanding into the Vestuses of the world, the GEs of the world of, of really taking some of the automated uh, technology out of the aerospace companies and putting it into the wind turbine companies? Well, I think most manufacturers have some small scale automation of sorts, uh, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. But but at a, but this seems like Siemens Gamesa is going in a big way towards automation, towards like car factory automation, um, right. which which is so of course it has um, cost implications. We hope to get the cost of these blades down. Um, sure. We hope to get the quality up. These kinds of things. less people. Um, more robotics consistency but that's that's the big thing i want to touch on here right we've talked about this many times uh we had our our good friend morton the blade whisperer on uh, not too long ago talking about quality issues in the factories so being from wind power lab we look at rcas and stuff all the time man i the majority of rcas you can point to some kind of manufacturing detect because or defect because it's when it's um that science meets art mix type thing right. uh that's when you run into trouble i mean that and that's why our, our but there's a problem there as well so like if i'm if i'm making desks and they're all mostly custom made and i'm selling at a matter premium and i'm only selling a hundred of them i'm not going to design a robot to build these desks for me i'm just going to be right. like well they're going to be expensive they're going to be expensive and there might be some flaws in it but i'm going to make every one of them by hand Right. So now if, if Siemens Gamesa can look at their, their portfolio of orders today, tomorrow, in the future, and, and kind of project out what they see for the renewable energy uh, uptake of these five, say it's the five megawatt machines, mm-hmm. and say, okay, guys, now we're looking at not selling or making a thousand of these blades. We might be making 10,000 of these blades. Now it makes sense to put some money into developing a system, and hopefully that system yeah. can be kitted for other blades, right? Right. Uh, but it makes sense to be putting some of this stuff in, and I would be willing to bet it's because partially, I think it's more driven this way than the economics of the sale price. Yes, but not so much. I think it's hmm. the hit that they take when they make mistakes, and not Siemens Gamesa specifically, but all of the manufacturers. Oh, so they're seeing this, they're seeing this happen, and they're like, "Man, we keep getting hit. Like people keep getting hit, coming back, going, oh, we need three new blades because these all had this.'" blah, 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 defect in it. And sometimes it's the guy running down the middle of the, the, the blade, putting glue down to stick this, the shear web on. If he goes like this or the machine doesn't squeeze out enough glue in one spot, now you've got a weak spot yeah. in the blade. Right. And now an insurance company that's worth their salt or an operator or asset owner is going to dig into that if the thing fails and go, guys, that's on you. And this happens a lot to these OEMs. So if they can alleviate some of that stuff, it de-risks their, the back end of their business model. So I think that in my mind, that's where this is being pushed, but that's just because I deal in that, I deal in those cases a lot. I, w- I wonder what Rosemary would say about this. Uh, I know in the aerospace world, when we do hand layup of parts, particularly critical parts, the, the ply count and making sure the ply is in the right places 
can get a little wonky unless you have this like people on top of people verifying, verifying, and that you put extra plies and extra weight and extra cost into a part just to accommodate those times where <laughs> a hand layup may not be right. Uh, and automation, when we switched automation back in the 90s, late 90s, where we started doing automated ply layups, we got rid of a lot of the extra dead weight that was there to accommodate human intervention. That you you also wonder, is it a combination of, yeah, you have less labor, but also do you end up having less material in the blades to cover up some of the variability that you had when you're doing it by hand? That may be another reason to go that way. You're going to save it somewhat on materials, and materials are not cheap. Uh, but also, you know, there's just too much. There's just, when you start talking about making structures that are, hundred meters long somewhere in there is a mistake right there has to almost has to be when you throw a human on top of that there has to be a mistake somewhere in most of those blades whether it you know progresses to the point of being a problem who knows do you see that same thing like maybe there's savings in all kinds of areas by automating a hundred percent agree with you and that fact of exactly what you're explaining has already started happening Right. If you look at the old, old one megawatt machines of any manufacturer, they're those blades are like bulldozers, man. Like they're they're yeah. thick and heavy, and the composite, the, they're composite. Every anybody that knows composites mean you're always looking at fatigue cycles and all these different things. And and you yeah. can, you can really, if you want to, I mean, look at a carbon fiber road race bike. That carbon fiber is so thin on those things, but there's no margin for error. There's no margin for error. Right, but that's why that bike frame costs ten thousand dollars. But so we've seen this already happening in the industry across all manufacturers. Is as these blades have gotten longer, they have dropped plies. Um, the safety factor just isn't there. Whereas they may have been designed and composites. That's a very tough thing to quantify sometimes, sure. because of because of you're just testing and testing and testing. You can only test so much uh, electronically, you know, in a CAD software before you have to test right. it in real life. And now it's getting harder and harder to test duty cycles and mean time before a failure of these hundred and some odd meter blades because testing that is hard. Yeah. So, and, and but at the same time, if you look at it, and I don't have a chart for this anywhere, but I, I, I just, I, I know it here. If you look at a simple measurement of like meter per blade to kilogram per blade, or meter meter per kilogram of each blade measured. As they get longer, they get way lighter. And it's not necessarily yeah, because they get to. longer. It's because it's because they're the, the next generation of blades that they're being designed with less safety factor, all these different things. Because if you had sure. if you had a hundred meter blade that was built like a like a yeah like an like, yeah exactly like a G one five even that blade right. would yeah, be that's true. I mean it would be as heavy as as I don't even I don't even know a blue whale like it would be so much it would be so big and heavy and then you get to the point where and this is why this is happening right bearings drivetrain cells the weight on top of the tower everything has to get bigger and bigger and bigger so that's why the safety factor of the composites has gone down but the design level and knowledge has gone up but you still then you then you're less or you're more prone to an error when there is a little bit of a like you said, uh, uh, you know that human involvement, the human factor, where they make a mistake. 
So yeah, you got to be you got to be careful with that, right? So as they take manufacturing errors out of the system, you know, where all the errors start to point to, they start to point <laughs> to the engineering group. That's where the the, exactly. the the errors start to accumulate, right? So oh, manufacturing, we have all this quality documentation, we have an automated system, we don't make mistakes. The only mistake that's happening down here, fellas, is design. your uh, <laughs> is your design. Everybody, yeah. uh, that's that's what happened at aerospace, and it happened in a big way at a company I was I worked for. Like, oh, dang it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's totally on the engineers. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, but it does then, like you said, put more emphasis on the engineering side to make sure that you're really understanding the, all the blade failure modes, the vibration modes, the flexing modes, the twisting, the bending, all the sort of secondary effects that we would mm-hmm. pay attention on, on one mm-hmm. megawatt blades. But yeah, when we get to 15, 20 megawatt blades, we're going to be paying a lot more attention. So it's going to be a, a much more work you think on the engineering side, just verifying and verifying because each blade is so expensive. Interesting change. I, I, I want to learn more about what Seaman Gamesa is talking to Airborne about. And they haven't publicized enough yet to get our teeth into it. But when they do, well, I want to follow up with this because this is probably the future of wind blades manufacturing. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. Be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast.